This is the Beyond Belief Sobriety Podcast, where we examine topics of interest to people who seek a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Today, my guest is Rob Kelly, who is currently lecturing about alcohol, about, excuse me, addiction at the University of Texas at San Antonio. He earned a PhD in psychology at Oxford University in 1984. He's also an accomplished musician, having worked as a bass guitarist at Abbey Studio in London. He is the author of Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking, uh, about his own personal journey through addiction and recovery, which is a book I just ordered from Amazon today, Rob, and I look look forward to reading. Uh, Rob uh, combines his own personal experience uh, with his education to help others uh, through the Rob Kelly Recovery Group, which we will learn more about as we go through our conversation here. So welcome to Beyond Belief Sobriety, Rob. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you for taking the time to do this. No, thank you, John. It's good to be. I'm looking forward to this. You know, uh, as I was reading your biography, there's there there are a number of things that stood out to me. Uh, one one thing, though, from from the beginning in your story that uh, we share in common is that we both started really early with our drinking, and in fact, about the same age. And I guess my first question to you, just to kind of get get an understanding of maybe your story, is looking back on on your time as an addict, what do you think was behind your starting drinking at the age of nine? Well, I think a lot of it was uh, predisposition, <clears throat> definitely um, hereditary. Um, grandfather was an alcoholic, missed my dad, got me kind of thing. Um, that's from my studying over the last 30 years about alcoholism. Not so much drug addiction, but alcoholism is what I specialize in. And then I was given the opportunity during a time of fear which for me was on a, a stage, musical stage, in front of maybe two or three hundred people playing with my, with my family and my uncle and auntie, and it was offered to me right there and then. So when I took this half glass of beer and I, and I drank it down in one, the whole world for me changed right there and then. And I knew that I was going to have a relationship with alcohol for the rest of my life. So that's, that, that was a turning point right there. For me, anyway, and uh, it just all the pieces fell into place for that to happen. Yeah, you know, uh, similar experience. And as I look back uh, on when I was started drinking at the age of eight or nine, which seems as crazy, but I understand it now. Looking at the house that I grew up in, and and when I found alcohol, that was medicine for me. And uh, I find it interesting that you wrote. There's a real difference between. Um, alcohol or alcoholism and drug addiction. I think that you wrote that uh, not everybody can become addicted to alcohol. That it's just, it's like, you just can't like anybody who uses a uh, heroin, for example, will become addicted to it after a certain amount of time, but not necessarily with alcohol. What's behind that, that difference. Yeah. Going back to, again, the, the predisposition uh, hereditary and uh, that the alcoholic brain is born that way. So what happens is the brain is slightly rewired and uh, the trauma that we get from that and and childhood trauma is rife in every alcoholic or addict, if not everybody. Uh, So that's definitely behind it. So the remark trauma is different. So let's say, for instance, and this is an interesting point that I found out in research uh, only about nine, ten years ago, is me and my brother, brother's fine, doesn't suffer from any addictions. 
and me are stood on the kitchen table, for instance, and my mum walks in and my mum says to my brother, Paul, will you get down off that table, you stupid idiot, get down. And he gets down. And she says the same to me in the same tone, in the same voice. But what I hear, get out of that chair, you stupid idiot. And I find with alcoholics, we tend to hear things differently because we want to self-sabotage. And that's where the addictive brain comes into its own is with the billions of uh, neural pathways, but our neural pathways in the alcoholic brain wants to self-sabotage more than the normal brain. And all this is new science <clears throat> that's not been published yet, but it's our findings and, and studies and case studies, uh, evidence-based research that we've done that, that differs from the both. So you were right when you said, John, that, you know, you can become, you can take heroin or whatever it is, meth, then you can use it on a regular basis, then you like it, then you, and, you know, this, this circle goes around, but then you become addicted to it and you can't stop taking it unless drastically an intervention was done where you go into hospital or treatment. With alcohol, here's the, here's the line I always use and people gasp in awe is, you cannot drink yourself into becoming an alcoholic. I know people drank more than me, drank more often than me, yet get this one and go to work. They have great jobs. With me, it was just destruction. So the first drink, and every alcoholic, real alcoholic, that's another definition as well we need to know about the alcoholic and the heavy drinker, will tell you, they remember the first time, my patient the other day said, I remember the first time that dad gave me alcohol. I said, how old did you? She said, I was four. I said, four? said, yeah, he put whiskey on a handkerchief and he put it on a tooth that was aching. And right there and then I knew alcohol was for me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and again, I can, I can relate to that uh, so, so much. And, and you have to forgive me. I'm always going to go back to relating to things personally, which is, seems kind of silly, but I'm, I'm learning a lot about, um, oh, I've been sober for a long time and, and I'm still learning about what, made me become an addict and what, what made me have problems with alcohol. And I find it interesting, this whole discussion that's going on right now about trauma and uh, what we're learning about uh, the science behind the brain and how our, our brain works. And I just can't help but think that the two are somehow related that, you know, it can't just be an either or um, situation that it's not like trauma causes, causes alcoholism. No. And, and and people people miss a couple of things, of course, the hereditary thing I've talked about, and then the trauma adds to the alcoholic brain. The uh, Growing up in certain situations and conditions adds to that. The family environment as a whole, if there's alcoholism, the family adds to that. So the quicker and the more drastic the, the upbringing of the child, especially going through early ages, four, five, six, seven, going into teenage, a lot of it depends on the conditions. That will add to it, but there was always the predisposition. And people may say, well, I'm an alcoholic. I know I am. You know, the doctor told me I was an alcoholic, and I have 10 DUIs, so got to be an alcoholic. No, you do not, my good man. If you, if you go to 12-step meetings, great. Continue doing that. But an al the only it, alcoholism is the only self-diagnosed illness in the world. Nobody can tell you you've got it. But what happens is when I put alcohol in my body, the craving starts because I'm allergic to it. So what happens, I have this obsessive mind that tells me once I, once I focus on alcohol uh, and I know I can start drinking through school, I have a laser focus on it. So my brain tells me, not like other people, 
that it's going to be different this time. Nobody's going to know that I'm going to be drinking. I deserve this drink. All the manipulation the mind plays with you, you yourself. And all of a sudden, you break down and you take that first drink. And what happens then after the mental obsession when you drink it is the body becomes to rely on it really quick. So the body needs it. So you can't crave anything that's not already in your body. But as soon as you take the alcohol in, there goes the cravings for alcohol. And it's kind of between the both. You know, you can't have one without the other kind of thing. But, you know, once then two come together, it's very, very hard to stop. Now, I always ask an alcoholic who's not too sure, when you take the first drink, can you stop? And most real alcoholics say no. Not on the first drink, you know, I mean, drink to oblivion where if you're not alcoholic and you go in and you go to a 12-step meeting or treatment because your wife told you to stop drinking or you think you're drinking too much on a couple of beers a week, um, then you're not the real deal that, that, that we talk about. And I think more education is needed on that. You know, there are people going to 12-step meetings who just go sit down, drink coffee and hit on women. And, and think they're alcoholic. Well, you're not necessarily alcoholic, you know, unless you have that story, that feeling, that one moment in your life where, you know, you took that drink and your whole world changed right there and then. That's the difference. Right. So you had, uh, I was reading your biography and there, and there was something you wrote there that, that I found striking that I, I think might might have informed the way that you view treating alcoholism today, uh, but correct me if I'm wrong, but you were talking about an experience you had while you were homeless on the streets of Manchester, and you um, you were coming off alcohol, you needed you needed a drink, you, you were going through withdrawals, and you were standing in front of a liquor store, and it wasn't opened yet, and the uh, they opened the liquor store, and the clerk uh, pulled out a bottle of vodka, put it in a, a paper sack on the counter for you. And as soon as you saw it, the, the your cravings were were getting you were finding relief, and and it occurred to you that it wasn't necessarily the alcohol, but the way you thought about the alcohol. It what that's really interesting. It is. And, and that was kind of my aha moment. Let's just go back to the second because it's really interesting while describing the story that we get the point. And this is, I'm sat outside a liquor store back in England many years ago. It's snowing. I'm in a vest and flip-flops and a pair of shorts and I'm sweating profusely. So I know from experience that I'm now going into DTs. And what happens is if I don't get alcohol in my body within the next 30, 40 minutes, I'm going to go into shock. And I'm gonna, my body's going to go into shock and, and fits, and I'm going to have to be taken to the hospital real quickly because I could die. So that, that's the preemptive of the story. And then the guy opens the door three hours before he should do because it can't sell alcohol until 10 o'clock. It's now 7 a.m. Puts the bottle on the counter. I grab the bottle, and this is what happened. <sighs> Headache stopped. Sweating stopped. The mood that I was in changed instantly into, oh, have a great day. It's awesome. And I remember grabbing the bottle. I looking at the shopkeeper and I looked and I could feel my whole life just change there from sadness to happiness. And all the symptoms I had just disappeared. I looked at the shopkeeper one more time and I looked back to the bottle that was unopened and I went, oh my goodness, it's not the alcohol. It's me. And, and that's why we always say that alcohol is just a symptom. It's nothing to do with the disease. And again, people said, what? Well, alcoholism is, well, let me tell you, 
the bottle is a symptom. So say a chicken pox, for instance, a friend of mine said, hey, I can see you got chicken pox. How do you know? Well, there's spots all over you, obviously. I said, that's the symptom. What I have is a viral infection you can't see. It's the same with alcoholism. The bottles are the symptom. I have a mental uh, defect that you can't see. And it's the same thing. So, you know, not necessarily is the alcoholic, you know, stood on the corner with a big coat and a, a string tied around his waist. These are people that are trying to hold down normal jobs. And alcoholism as a whole is one of the most um, un misunderstood illnesses in the world. There's no doubt about that with the research. You see, when I got off the streets, I, I, I was, oh, my goodness, I can't believe I got off the streets. Something happened on occasion. I bumped into a guy. I spent the rest of my life studying alcoholism, the brain, the behavior, uh, the upbringing and the trauma around alcoholism. And we think, we think, uh, we think we've got it right with the treatment that we administer. And what is that? Well, it's a no drug treatment. It's all about changing your pathways. So uh, all alcoholics, who are the real alcoholics, uh, predisposition, that kind of stuff, um, have self-sabotaging your pathways all of the time. So nine out of 10 times, we'll always look on the bad side, not the good side. But the 1% will build up some sort of life or get ready for some sort of interview, whatever it may be, and the other percentage will self-sabotage on that. So that it's about changing your pathways, getting the uh, getting the neurons to, to once again be in place to get that pleasure that we have from normal life, looking at our behavior. Because there's a very interesting part to explain what we do. We use neuroplasticity and we use somatic experience and we use uh, brain spotting. And see, that's what I want to add. Those are the things I have no idea what those are. So Excellent. Well, let's, let's, <laughs> let's go back to that. So okay. normal psychology takes place in the program. My psychotherapist and my coaches go back to the scene of the crime uh, with the family and the trauma. They clear all that up. And then I specialize... <clears throat> somatic experience uh, somatic experience has been around for many years but it's basically looking at what our body's trying to tell us so the treatment on that alone is phenomenal brain spotting is a new technique just come out i'm one of five uh guys that can that's been uh, certified in this it's not come out as a real program yet but i knew when I saw when I met this guy, there was something to it. It's a direct input from the from the pupils to the subconscious brain where the disease lives. So once again, getting rid of all that trauma. When them things happen, uh, we can clear up the past, and then we can start building a future. And we have to again, as we go every hour that we meet every day, because we have to uh, uncover, discover, and discard in your pathways in the disease itself. And repetition strengthens and confirms. So an internal dialogue, these are all things we work on. So if I drop a pen on the floor, I'm not a stupid idiot. I've just dropped a pen on the floor because us, our internal dialogues as human beings will, will, will affect everything in our life, but as alcoholics can kill us. You know, we again hear and feel differently to other people. And uh, that's what happens is we self-sabotage. And the only way I self-sabotage is to drink alcohol. So is that what neuro-linguistic programming is, is helping develop those, those new pathways, neuropathways? Is that like a, just a different way of thinking or using the brain? Correct. It's a different way of thinking, but also catching out the disease of alcoholism. 
So uh, NLP, Neuro Linguistic Program, is to redirect and solidify neural pathways to make sure you don't go back into old behavior. And it's really clever how we do it because once we start new neural pathways off, we practice them every day. Let's say somebody comes in our office, let's say, um, and, you know, they're into football or tennis or whatever. When you come into the office, from when you park your car to the driveway, into the house, you know, there are certain signs around that we might leave a tennis ball on the side of the, of the ground where you'll notice that subconsciously straight away. You might come in, we'll get a tennis picture or something, a small picture in the corner, you'll notice that. Then by the time you get into my office to see me, you'll be quite comfortable because you've seen things that you recognize that the subconscious brain takes in. So we did a demonstration to prove this many years ago, and we had a guy that would always drink Coke every time he comes in, Coke, Coke, no ice, Coke, no ice. So we asked him if we could take him for a trip round because I wasn't ready to see him yet. And one of my drivers took him round. And we made sure we passed him five billboards with Fanta drinks on them. And when he got out, there was a can on the floor, empty can was a Fanta can. And by the time he came in the office, as usual, the girl went over and said, okay, before you see Dr. Robert, can he drink you? And he said, I'll take a Fanta. That's the neuroscience we're talking about without going into we can change that we can change if you hang around nine depressed people you'll become the tenth it's the mirroring part of the brain you know watch who we stand around watch what we say to each other watch what we say to ourselves and start building a life that you're happy with because this has to be fun if it's not fun and you can't build a life beyond your wildest dreams i'm out john i'm back drinking i don't care i'm selfish so it's all about redeveloping yourself and building this this new person because again going back to the trauma we're, we're never good enough i come up with a saying we're never going to be tall enough thin enough blonde enough or rich enough it just isn't going to happen so when we start to accept that because our parents are pushing us with people we're not the easier way to live for me yeah you know uh of all the people that i everybody that i talk to almost everybody anyway that has been in recovery most of them will point to uh community connection with other people is probably the most important part of their recovery. And, and it was with me too. And I think that one reason for that is because, um, it makes recovery pleasant. It makes it, um, sometimes even, I mean, for me, I, I had to enjoy my recovery. And when I, when I was in my early recovery days and I was around people my own age and we were going out and just having fun together sober, that to me was, probably i thought one of the more important things that i'd done in my early recovery do you think there's something to that definitely definitely human contact we're we're communication beings <clears throat> we need all this um we haven't seen the backlash yet of covid and the isolation and the you know online working and stuff like that we've not seen the back the backlog there will be a big big mess from that uh, regarding uh well psychologists will tell us that it's going to be a big mess of that, and I truly believe that. But, yeah, communication, we need to do that. You know, if you're going to, say, 12 groups around the area, if you're going to one or two a week, that, that suffices. You know, it's definitely part of the deal because <clears throat> if you tell somebody something, they're going to start to believe it. If you tell them often enough, they're really in. They truly believe it. But if you do the same and continue, then I'm going to start to believe it. So that's the, the idea of meeting other people in the same situation that I'm in. 
where normal people don't understand. Normal people still think that alcoholism is a behavioral problem. It's not a behavioral problem. You know, it goes way deeper than that. But by meeting the guys uh, who have the same disease as me, and, and we, it's like a pet rally when we meet, it's phenomenal. So that gives me the, the courage to go out and talk to people as I wish. And when I say thank you to somebody, dopamine released in my brain, and I love that stuff. So I'm always kind and considerate and looking what I can do for other people. And when I do that, John, my life seems to take off. It really does, you know? And it's just, if, if, you're, if you're in recovery, okay, guys, listen to this carefully. If you're in recovery and you sat at home right now and you don't think you're good enough, you think you're worthless, you'll never amount to anything, I want to apologize to you guys. Somebody's put that there. We're not born this way. We're born with million-dollar minds. Stop hanging around 10-cent people, you know? Show me your friends, I'll show you your future. And that's why the meetings and the fellowship and the church and wherever you go to get that is phenomenal. And it needs to completely happen. Definitely. So how are people doing that you're treating today, that you're helping today with the isolation that's been imposed on us through COVID? Well, once you, once you find out your true self, once the neural pathways are, are, are redirected into positive, healthy neural pathways, we know how to look after ourselves. I've treated over 6,500 people in the last 30 years of doing this, many of them checking from the biggest rock stars and TV stars and movie stars in the world to the road sweeper and the janitor. They're all doing well because we know how to look after ourselves in such a situation. And the reason why we do is because of our past, because of the homelessness, the neglect, the abandonment in our past, which every alcoholic suffers from, then we know how to you know, get through this. And that's what we found, that people who have recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body uh, are used to isolation, but also they know the danger points where normal people don't because they're, you know, I hear them all the time. I have 5,000 friends on Facebook, Rob, and I go, well, really, you just plugged into the wall. That's all you are. We need that human contact as often as we can because if we do spout our control, no one's there to keep us accountable. You know, we need that every day to develop my, my sound of mind. Right. Yeah, I, f- I find it interesting that uh, the recovery community has done pretty well through COVID as far as being able to find new ways of connecting with each other. And even people who are needing help, and there's a lot more of them now, are finding help online. Uh, and things are changing here in the United States all the time. You know, And, and where I live in Missouri, uh, it seemed like things were getting better and now it's getting worse again. So people that were meeting in person are now getting back online again. It's just, I find it really interesting. This is going to be, I don't know how we're going to come out of this. I think that, I think that there's going to be a lot of good that comes out of it in the end, that we're going to find new ways of, um, of connecting people that are seeking support that we didn't have before this. Definitely. I even see my doctor online. You know, everything's gone online right now, which is easy for everybody. We've, got, we, we've, been, uh, we've been telehealth for eight years, so we kind of know what the deal is. And, uh, you know, but yeah, I think, I think there's millions of things that have come out that are, are pro. It's like, oh, my God, we can do this, 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 free up our time. It's amazing. But the other thing we've got to be careful of is, you know, the isolation with normal people because, it, you know, it really affects your mind. Most people that are sentenced to death 
sit on death row for many, many years before the execution. Tests have done that nine out of them, 10 people, by the time they reach the chair or whatever it is, are insane. You know, and that's the only thing we've got to be careful of. But we can Zoom every day. You know, it's great. It's saved, it's saved a lot of people's sanity as, as apps like Zoom and, you know, StreamYard and, and whatever else they, the guys use out there. It has saved our sanity rather than just a, a phone call. Right, right. So another thing I wanted to talk about as well with you is uh, there's a lot of shame associated with addiction. Um, and there's a lot of stigma associated with being an addict, being an alcoholic. And I think there's sometimes even a stigma associated with even being in recovery from it. And I, I wonder if you have any thoughts about what people in the recovery community might be able to do to somehow reduce the stigma of just even being a person in recovery. I always think, uh, you know, when I walk anywhere or do anything or meet anybody, I'm the only face that they may see that day from somebody who'd struggle from alcoholism and he's well. Because we still get tagged with that, oh, my God. My first wife will say all the time, he's just an alcoholic. Stop wasting your time with him as an alcoholic. So I think education is the first thing. One of my main things when I came to Texas uh, 14 years ago was to start, especially with the people that I know um, personally, is get them to start coming out, you know. Uh, a lot of huge stars that I've asked have been wearing medallions and you know, come out freely. A lot of people still won't because it will affect their TV contract or work or, or, you know, whatever it may be. But we need to start being strong and educate other people that, first of all, someone who's recovered from alcoholism is one of the best people in the world. I only employ recovered alcoholics and addicts because you find the true you of honesty, of knowing what life's all about. And, and alcoholics and addicts are the only people that get two lives in one lifetime. You know, so it's really important that we look at this from a de definitely different angle. I mean, wherever I go, I'm, I'm either Dr. Rob or Rob Kelly. It doesn't make any difference. I'm not hiding from who I am. If you're in recovery and you see me talk somewhere or, you know, walking somewhere and you recognize my face, that's why I do it. I'm open. I'm free. I'm proud. I'm loud. I'm sometimes aggressive on a nice aggressive, not horrible, fighting aggressive, that this needs to be an understanding that everybody Listen to this, guys. Everybody knows somebody who's struggled with alcohol and drugs. And if you don't, then it's probably you. You are so right about that. And, you know, I have only, within the last couple of years, have come out openly um, as being a person in recovery. And I've been sober for 33 years. You know, it's kind of, it's crazy, I know. But I, uh, I'm i just now comfortable being on YouTube with my first and last name, et cetera. So, um, but I think it's important. And the thing that the thing that it, it occurs to me that whether I'm talking to somebody at work, somebody I don't even know, almost everybody has somebody in their life who has struggled with addiction and alcohol addiction in particular. And they have seen it up close and personal, just how bad it can be. So it's like, why wouldn't you want to come out and just say, yeah, you know, I had that problem too. And I happen to know of a few resources that you might want to know about. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And uh, I, I used to get it in Starbucks, you know, because of my English voice, first of all. Just going out for a cup of tea or, you know, Earl Grey and somebody always within earshot goes, oh, my God, you're from England? Oh, my God, how did you get here? Oh, my God, what did you do for a living? And every single time I tell him that I'm a doctor that works with alcoholics or addicts, every single time, John, oh, my uncle, my auntie, my sister, Every single time, it wasn't one person. So then we we, we did a uh, in, when I was in Dallas in Highland Park, 
was I sent my staff out one day to ask questions freely. And yes, a hundred percent everybody they approached knew somebody. Yeah. Yeah. So so yeah. So to me now it's it seems pretty clear that it's it's not a it's not a problem uh, for me to be open about that. And it it makes actually having conversations a lot easier. So if somebody does if I'm at work and someone says, Yeah, you know, uh my brother is really having a really hard time right now, at least I can at least I can say, Yeah, you know, I understand this, you know, and so rather than, uh, you know, it's a shame for so many years, I would hear a conversation like that and I would, I would shut down. They wouldn't know. So yeah, I, I do think, I think that I do think that that's key. And of course I understand that it kind of depends where you are in your life right now, where you, how comfortable you are coming out openly like that. But the more of us that do, I think, I think is, is, is for the, is for the better. It's just a better understanding all around, you know, that we need to take visions of, I, when I do, uh, when I do my, uh, courses or do my talks or lectures around i often put on the powerpoint i put uh, two people and one of them is a, a vagrant a tramp you know on grow big beard and he stood there with a bottle and then i show a mother in a business suit having a glass of wine with friends and i often say which one's the alcoholic and most of them choose the down and out guy who's homeless and i don't know they're actually both alcoholics it's just that one has been left untreated and one will soon become uh, in that danger point. So you can't judge the guy with the bottle in his hand that is a homeless. You've got to look at the people around you. And, you know, me personally, after the research I've done, uh, shows that alcohol kills more people than cancer and heart attacks. Now, before you jump on the phone and start calling John, you have to realize that most of alcoholism Deaths do not go down as alcoholism deaths. So we go back to 10 years ago in Dallas, Richardson Hospital, where we were allowed to sit in their ER for a couple of Fridays and Saturday nights. And most people that came through and died were chronic alcoholics, but it went down as, you know, fire in the house or car crash or liver failure. It never goes down for the true reason. It always goes down as something else. So the figures that we see are not correct, and I know that for a fact. So that's why every – I mean, you can go up to somebody and say, hey, do you, do you know anybody on a heart attack? And people go, oh, no, no not really. I mean, I, mean, I, can't really, I can't think. Alcoholism and addiction, oh, yeah, straight away. So there has to be some truth in their numbers and not being presented correctly because there's so much money to be made on alcohol and drugs – for everybody involved, including the government, than there is to ban it completely. And there, that's why there's no money in recovery. Unless, unless the pharmaceutical, and I'm sorry, guys, if I have to say this and offend you, uh, unless the pharmaceutical company cannot give you a pill or a treatment center can't charge you $30,000 a month, nobody wants to know. And that's why there's a lot of homelessness, a lot of deaths happening because you're still cast away into that don't go near this person they have a drink or alcohol or drug problem stay away from them and yet if you only knew just like yourself john how many people you worked with that have struggled with that but got their life back you would be shocked yeah yeah so d- does does the rob kelly recovery group do you do you specifically treat alcoholism or do you also um help people with other addictions all addictions. All, all addictions. Problems. Yeah. If you've got a divorce and you need your life change, come to us. If you've got depression, come to us. Bipolar, it makes no difference because it's all around uh, the science of how the brain works and the central nervous system. So, yeah, 
we treat everything. And we have a 90-day program because it's around 90 days that the brain fully starts to change and redirect. And we spend an hour a day with you on on uh, on Zoom, this HIPAA compliance software. Yeah, and and that's what that's what we do, and uh, we're very proud of what we do. We we have two things that nobody else has. When you look at treatment centers and other places of a five percent success rate, we have a ninety seven percent ninety seven percent success rate. And here's the thing I'm going to say, because nobody else is doing it in the world. We are that confident about what we do that we offer a money-back guarantee that if you relapse whilst following our program in a year, two, three, five years after, we'll refund every single dime that you've put into my office, every single dime. Wow, that is amazing. That is amazing. And that's actually nice to hear because it, it almost seems like... Um, it almost seems like if you if you run in a treatment center, it's almost like you you're incentivized not to not to get the person well because they keep coming back, you know, with with their with their relapse. But our whole system kind of seems to be that way anyway. It's like we're our whole health system is kind of designed to kind of keep people sick in a way because uh, you make money you make money from it. But every um, time you know you go to your doctor, you pay a copay. They send you to get X-rays. You pay a copay. Right. Then you got to go back to the doctor to get the answer from it. Then there's another copay. Right. Just no wonder the insurance is is crazy high. It's like I don't know. I don't understand it. But what are you going to do? So I watched a um, an interesting clip of of you. You had an interview with a local uh, television station in San Antonio, and you were talking about the opioid epidemic and who's responsible for that. And I thought that was really interesting. There, there, there is some culpability out there, isn't there? There, there's a couple of, uh, if you watch that, um, that clip, it was an interesting clip. It got a lot of views. Um, I think that was, an, I think that went national, but what happened, it was, uh, we're talking about opiates and we're talking about a company in particular called Purdue, Purdue company or Purdue. And, uh, I obviously, said things direct like I do and it had a huge effect on people watching it and it went crazy on YouTube. Now I'm not saying it was a direct um, matter of, of me speaking there, but they filed for bankruptcy the next day. Yeah. I'm not saying there must have been a hundred of things that happened, but I'm proud I was part of that because we really need to look, you know, when you look at painkillers for as a whole, the pharmaceutical companies run this country. End of story. What happened to morphine? It was good enough for my mom when she was having children. It was good enough for my mom when she had cancer. It's good enough for everybody else with the pains and the break and all this stuff. What happened to that? Why did we need a stronger painkiller than morphine? And yet, look at the stuff today on the market. It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous that we should get fentanyl that's only supposed to be used in, in, in really heavy cases of cancer now on the streets. Yeah, that amazing. And fentanyl, it kills you. Just small, tiny amounts of it kills tiny you. Tiny will kill you. That's yeah, just incredible tiny. to me. Yeah, it is. I mean, just, I don't know. It, it just it amazes me. But then you go back to the billions of dollars being made on all that stuff that shouldn't even be on the open market or on the streets will find its way because it's all about money, all about the money. You know, as soon as they find out what the, what the, how to get hold of it or the, or the compound structure, you know, they're making it themselves. It's just crazy. There's no need for it. And we're killing 
I became an American citizen about six months ago, and I take this country very seriously. I got my green card the proper way. I didn't come over here and marry somebody. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. <laughs> right. I'm just saying I love this country. I see my own country get massacred from, from letting anybody in the country. So I'm really proud to be an American today, and it hurts me when I see people dying on a daily basis of, of the stuff that's on the streets right now being cut with all sorts. You've only get some, I don't know, heroin or whatever it is, you, you, and stick a little tiny piece of uh, fentanyl in there, and all of a sudden you're the best drug dealer in that, in that area and people mm. are going to come. So recently, uh, within the last year, I, uh, I, went, I took a course to become a peer support specialist, certified peer support specialist in Missouri. And in doing that, I've been able to connect with other people in my state talking about, um, oh, the problems that we have in Missouri. And, and a, lot of, a lot of the problems center around uh, opioids and the opioid epidemic. And I went, to a, I went to a seminar where they were talking about the possibility if the federal government would um, give, give the okay for St. Louis to actually have a safe injection site for, to help people. And I'm just kind of wondering if if you could give me your thoughts on harm reduction, and if there's a if there's a place for it in recovery, and even is there a place for it in alcohol recovery? Well, that, I did one of the appearances on the doctors, which is a huge millions and millions of people follow. We had this conversation about six years ago. And and it was I, I was for safe rooms in the hospitals, in centers where people can go. I was for that for a couple of reasons. So when I grew up, we'd often find discarded uh, needles on the floor from, from uh, drug addicts. This is how I look at it. And there's pros and cons. I know that guy's all over the place. But if you, if, if you can encourage a couple of addicts uh, to walk into the safe place, getting brand new needles, inject there, uh, it would keep them off the streets, first of all. But most importantly, I think, if there was some person in that room that was talking to them and friendly, possibly a recovered addict, if you save one person in a hundred that come in that day, surely it's worth it. You can't put a number on a on a life. So, yeah, and I think, you know, most, most, so it's almost blowing my brain now, I'm going to say, because it's amazing. What people don't realize is most heroin addicts don't want to take heroin. Most addicts in general don't want to do it. So if, if we can come into a safe place and have them in every corner and get a chance to speak to somebody who's got their life back together again, it only needs a little tiny incentive in the brain to go, maybe I can do this. And that's why, that's why I'm pro uh, injection sites yeah I, I i have the same thought it seems to me and from what i've learned about the injection sites they have in canada is that's what that's what helps first of all you're not alone so you're not going to overdose someone's there to make sure that you don't plus you are around other people and that seems to be the key if you're going to ever have any hope of recovery if there's ever going to be a spark of recovery you're going to catch it from another person hopefully that I have never heard that said. I'm going to write that down. Oh, really? <laughs> brilliant. I just think yeah, that never, that's the you're case. You're always going to catch it off somebody else, the, the, the recovery bug of somebody else. That is so true. We can't do this on our own. I mean, even if we look, we look at alcoholism as a whole, the hypothalamus in my brain, which is at the base towards the back of the brain, 
it's my fight or flight part of the brain. So it tells normal people to run, to stay, uh, to eat food, and to drink water. <clears throat> At a certain point of alcoholism, uh, our brain is different to anybody else's. So what my brain tells me going past into chronic alcoholism is to drink alcohol only. It doesn't tell me to eat food, and that's why I could go weeks without eating food. It doesn't tell me to drink water. I can go weeks without drinking water, but I have to drink on a daily basis. So when you're looking at that, that your brain's already telling you, then you know for a fact that you can't do it on your own. And that's what you just said. It was just freaking amazing. Yeah, you know, it's just like, I don't know. It's just, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a, a new life being passed on to somebody else. Yeah. When we were talking about harm reduction, though, too, with uh, amongst my peers, we were talking about it, and when we were talking about it with respect to alcohol, and I, I didn't really see a place for it in alcohol, and 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 they were asking this this one particular person about it. He says, "Well, the way that I would approach harm reduction when it comes to alcohol is I would, you know, help educate people about how um, they don't drink and drive, how they, you know, make sure that they don't have their keys around or, or something like that." And still, it didn't make sense to me because I, I mean, I had been there. I was, I was an alcoholic and I was a blackout drunk and I drove in blackouts. And I don't think I, I don't think there's any way in the world that I could have reasoned myself not to do that. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. No, again, let's go back to the brain telling you to do it. It's impossible, impossible to stop drinking while you're in that. that, You can't. And you can't think rationally. You can't think rationally. Yeah. The amount, the amount of calls I've got from, from prisons and jails, and they go, Dr. Rob, oh, my God, I've just woke up. You're my first call. You know, what's going on? But they told me I, I run over someone last night and killed him. Probably did. If that's the case, they don't remember. They just don't remember. So <clears throat> a lot of heavy drinkers show up as alcoholics. That, that's the main thing. There's a difference between the Friday night drunk uh, and, and the Friday night alcoholic. One needs treatment, one needs jail. There's no doubt about that. But you have to go into the, the differences between them heavy drinkers, them abusers of alcohol, which is different from alcoholism. That's the final line we need to look. So with them guys, they are going to be saved by, you know, you know, stop drinking and driving. Let's, let's do something like you can't do this, can't do that, leave your keys at home. That will definitely reduce a lot of trauma going forward. But with the alcoholic, you know, there, there's no stopping them. It's virtually impossible to not do these things. Like you, I mean, people grab your keys. We get very angry at that and, and violent towards. It's like, don't tell me what to do. And then we drive and then something crazy happens. And, of course, most people are looking at life sentences when that happens. But it just we, we are insane with the illness. Nothing makes sense to us. The reality, uh, the, 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 the dream you know, the, we, we can't tell the difference between the right and the wrong or the real world and the fantasy world. There's no line there. So we, we will do crazy things. Listen, I'm not too sure where we are with, with your listeners or viewers, but guys, I stabbed my wife three times one night because she wouldn't let me finish the bottle of vodka I was drinking. Now, I was absolutely aghast and ashamed of that. But I didn't. I did it at the time because that's what I do. Don't. Take the alcohol off me and don't tell me I can't drink and drive because it doesn't work with us. It works with heavy drinkers and abuse of alcohol and it's beautiful. But with us, it don't work. I can see the difference. And, you know, and I've, and I've also read too that um, some from authors I respect that, you know, you, you do have to kind of think about alcoholism or alcohol use disorder, whatever you want to call it, as kind of lying on a spectrum. And you might have some people who are in the sober, curious category who can just stop for good health reasons, who still have some sanity about them. But then you have other people who are on the other side of the spectrum that are really seriously ill and need and need something more serious than just um, 
to, to, to get to be able to stop. They need some more serious intervention or help. So here, here's the crazy part that with normal per- people, you know, uh, that goes a long way. Alcoholics, the bottles only the symptoms. So it's not about the alcohol. What's it about? Then we go back to the trauma. And when we go back to the depression, then we go back to the isolation. Normal people don't do that. You know, wife or doctor says, you better stop drinking, Johnny, otherwise you're going to be dead. Boom, stopped. You know, I'll just have one night a week where I go out and go blitz. Great, go and do it. Just don't drink and drive, don't get into trouble. Go and do that. It's great. But with the alcoholic, it's not about alcohol. No alcoholic towards the end of his drinking career enjoys the taste. Nobody does. They hate the taste. They hate what you drink. But we have to do it time and time again because it's not about the alcohol. In my studies, alcohol is 1% of alcoholism. And, and that's most important to understand that it's just, it's the spots to my chicken pots. It's the bottle to my disease. You know, I have, I have this horrible disease that for which there is no cure. There is no cure for alcoholism. But hey, before you get all freaked out about that, there's no cure for the common cold. All food poisoning. You just have to take a few simple steps every day and look after yourself and make sure you follow a rigid program to make sure that you never drink again because there is no cure for that. Whereas a normal person having a DUI or, you know, punch the missus one night is like so ashamed that he could probably never drink again. With the alcoholic, he does the same thing the next day. Right. And, but, and you're finding, though, that once, once a person gets treatment and once they start rewiring the circuits, they can have a, more, a happy, productive life. And fairly quickly, it looks like within about 90 days, you begin rewiring those brain, that, that, your brain. Definitely. I mean, we, we always tell people when they come to us, you'll see a difference from day one. And, and like people come in, well, I've been seeing my therapist for five years. Why? Why? If nothing happens from day one, why are, you, why are you going back? It's the same as madness with alcohol. Why do you keep going back to something that's not working? But yeah, the same day and with, eight, with 90 days, I love 90 days because obviously the, the repair of the damage done to the brain, that's amazing. But yeah, it's really quick, guys. It's not this complicated matter that we're talking about. It's not, I don't fight alcohol today. If I fought alcohol on a daily basis, I'd be drunk right now talking to you because I can't fight it. The problem for me had to be removed. The psychic change, the psychic being psychology, psychiatrist change, the change of mind for me had to happen because my knee-jerk reaction was always to self-sabotage, whatever it needed. That could be sex, it could be food, it could be alcohol, it could be drugs. You know, we have to change that. That mindset, then, then in time, changes the behavior. It changes the central nervous system. And altogether, you know, if you're getting sober and clean and really mean it, then your life needs to change from day one. You need to start looking at what's possible for you. Can I be a CEO of a multi-million-dollar company? Of course you can. And I tell people all the time, stop putting the brakes on your imagination when it comes to rebuilding your life. And I always used to get, John, smart comments years ago. Well, I can't be president. Well, I beg to differ today. The same thing still applies. If you want something bad enough, and if you don't drink, you should want something bad enough, like that new car, that new house, new wife, whatever it may be, then, then, the, then it's, the world is open to you. It's like you know, quantum physics. Quantum physics tells me I can be up to 25 places on a basketball court at the same time because nothing really is solid. So I looked at that and I thought to myself, where would I want to be if I, were, if I, if I could see myself 25 t- places at the same time? Where do I want to be? I want to be over near the goal. 
So when I get the ball, I put it in the net, I'm the hero of the game. People always ask me, John, well, how do I get there? Well, you've already visualized it in your head, so walk over and take that position. That's it. That's it. Don't, don't beg for it. Don't go back, drink it. Walk over and take that position because what you can visualize in your mind, you can hold in your hand. I'm living proof of that. I'm absolute living proof. And my, my youngest daughter, I've never seen. Never seen since they took them off me many years ago when they were youngsters, you know? And, and I'll probably never see her again. And that's the price I have to pay. But you know something? My eldest daughter got in contact with me four years ago. And as of about six months ago, she's my therapist in my Manchester office. In Isn't that Manchester. great? That's wonderful. But these are the things that can happen if you stick to it. It might not come at first. The changes might not be absolutely amazing when you want anything in life, but it's right. definitely attainable. Right. Definitely. Yeah. Well, I think that you have a really positive message and I, I like, I like the, I like the science behind it, even though I don't understand it. You help me understand it. You do, you do a good job of explaining it in a way that a person like me can kind of grasp it, you know, understanding how I can kind of rewire my thoughts to think, to train my brain, to think in a different way. And, uh, that I can, I can actually have a decent life in recovery. Uh, so I, I think that, I think that it's just, I think there's a lot of promise right now for for um alcoholics you know Definitely. and thank you for the work that you're doing not just with the the recovery group and your work as a therapist and as an educator but also being out there in in media and educating the public about addiction and the hope for recovery i think it's important work and i'm really grateful that you do that so thank you for thank you for putting yourself out there and for being on this podcast i appreciate it definitely the future is bright and one more i want to think i want to say because I've done my research on you, John. I know I know what you do and who you are. And you're an amazing person. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. And thank you for coming out and driving, you know, helping hundreds of thousands of people with the ripple effect. Listen, guys, if you start at home and you don't know what to do and you're feeling down and your life just looks like crap, here's my personal phone number, guys. I'll give you a pep talk in 10 minutes. That will change your life. I guarantee you. It's 214-600-0210. That, my friends, is my personal cell phone number you won't get my assistant you won't get my receptionist you'll get me if i'm busy call me i'll call you back but listen you're not alone guys i'm here wow. to help i'll put that out there for uh in our show notes so uh again thank you rob it was really nice to talk to you i i've enjoyed every minute of it and it was so great to have this opportunity so with that i'm gonna go ahead and play our outro music That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.